Yo, Dan. What's going on? All good, man. How are you doing? You know, another day. Yeah. The uh, is today a big day in Farcaster Land? Yeah, I mean record day. We just crossed twenty thousand Dow for the first time. So wow, congrats! Yeah. I saw that. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, it's like almost four x week over week. Wow. What's um What's leading to all that growth? Like, how how are you getting? It's, I think frames frames is is definitely <clears throat> it's sustaining in terms of being interesting for people, and to the point where other protocols are now. Uh, adopting it and they're not even trying to rename it. They're just calling it Farcaster frames. They're like, this is a frame. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's already kind of becoming a little bit more universal, which um, I view that as a good design is something that is, is yeah. simple enough and universal enough that others can quickly copy because it is a protocol, right? Like the goal wasn't to make like some proprietary thing. Um, yep. And I think generally it's like definitely uh, the term I'd use nerd snipe where it's like a lot of really talented engineers are, are kind of mucking around with frames or how, how can they extend it or do things. And and the other thing we, we launched it with pretty limited functionality and people started to figure out how to put stuff on chain. Like we, we did not have, there's no crypto connection to the actual frame primitive, but it didn't stop people from figuring out clever ways to get stuff on chain because it's, it's crypt, you know, crypto native folks who use it. So, um, so I think it's something like 50,000 mints uh, on chain that have happened as a result. So NFTs. Yeah. And, uh, so I, yeah, I, I think there's just a, a lot of really interesting directions we can go. Um, we're adding a, a text field, right? This is again, really simple, primitive, an image in four buttons. We're now adding a text field. So the text field will actually allow you to connect it to LLMs. So there's a whole new, uh, area that people can build and, and bring in AI tools, which could, I don't know, interesting use cases. The developers always seem to surprise me. Yeah. The, at what point will you be like, what, what needs to be true, either a metric or, or, or something qualitative for you to be like, okay, this thing is definitively, definitively working because uh, last episode, you, you, uh, some forecaster, uh, you, uh, you know, users were saying, Hey, Dan's being a bit too modest. Or, you know, you have high standards for yourself. So what do you need to hit for you to be like, oh, wow, you're, you're not, well, you won't be modest anymore. Yeah, let's, let's just be clear. It's not my high standards for myself. Reality has high standards. So you, you can either <laughs> be totally delusional and think, you know, you're the greatest thing since sliced bread. Or you can kind of say, what could potentially go wrong here? Uh, Andy Grove, only the paranoid survive. Like, you, you just got to make sure you keep it going, right? And I think that's part of being an entrepreneur is you can't get too high on the highs and you can't get too low on the lows, right? Too low on the lows, you quit. Too high on the highs, you start to not stay focused on, on what got you to where you are. And uh, I actually, I did a couple of podcasts today. Uh, I did Bankless. So that's a pretty big audience. Oh, great. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, but, and I, I did one with Jesse Pollock uh, and, and we came up a couple of times, but I, I think it's the biggest thing I learned from Brian Armstrong is the ability to kind of weather the ups and downs because i mean you know this like startups are extreme euphoria to you know the most crushing feeling of anxiety and or defeat in like a 24-hour period sometimes it's absolutely crazy right um and i think brian having worked closely with him 
I really kind of learned, oh, this is, this is how you actually weather that. And not, not everyone does, but I think like the, the leader I would want to be is, is closer to a Brian Armstrong than maybe another CEO who's, who's a little bit more like, I look, I do plenty of hype, right? I was all over Twitter this week. I got plenty of responses. Uh, Julia told me like, Hey, like maybe, maybe like cool it on the Twitter <laughs> reality is it's, it's a really good top of funnel for us. And so it's actually kind of funny. At one point, I think I was talking to Mark Andreessen when, when they invested in Mark, I, I was like, ah, I don't really like being a shill on Twitter. I, I can't stand those people. And, and Mark's like, shilling is good. Like that, that is your yeah. job. Like your, like, your job you is to convince to people to use this. It's like Peter Thiel sales, right? Like, I, like I'm a social network. I don't, I'm not selling you anything outside of like the vibe. And, and so when we have something good going on, I, I have to go do that. But I feel like podcasts are kind of interesting where you can be a little bit more authentic and nuanced, like tweet yeah. less so. Uh, podcasts, I think people actually resonate when, when you come across a little bit more like vulnerable and, and like what you're actually feeling versus something that's fake. And so I, I think generally it's like, yeah, I, I want frames to be the thing. Like we've been grinding for three years on this, but at the same time, like, I don't know, like week to week and, and day seven retention, day 30 retention, those... The, those rule everything around me, right? And so if, if users stick around, all this growth sticks around, and, and not all of it, but but you know a good chunk, like best in class level retention, then yeah, I, I think it'll be like a big win. And if it doesn't, I still think it's a big win because it actually, I think it helped put Farcaster on the map for a lot more people. And I think yeah. it changed the the conversation within even just like the, the crypto sphere of like, totally. what is Farcaster? And it, and it kind of, yeah. I, I feel like we've, we've put ourselves in a little bit of a new category. And so it's our salute. And so, so like, I think we're, you know, I have a fantastic co-founder in Varun and I think we're both really focused on don't get distracted. Um, there's yeah. a zillion things and, that you can do, especially and, when things are going well, as you can imagine. And so I think you just need to stick to the plan that got you to where you were, but you yeah. also need to pay attention. It's like, obviously something working, doubling down on it. Mark actually was doing an impromptu AMA. Did you see it on Farcaster? Yeah, yeah. That was great. Yeah. I, I love that. And Dixon too, right? Yeah. So Mark Mark is... So Chris did an AMA. He has his book. And, and you know, I'd done one with Yari Tan and, and some others, Brian Armstrong. But uh, Mark did an impromptu one. Didn't tell me he was going to do it. And he just has a standing thread. So you can ask him a question. He comes on like once or twice a day. And he does the Mark thing um, where he just answers and and answers at a level like it's like it's like you know watching like michael jordan play basketball like the guy is completely native for the medium right like his his response in a, in a small little text uh you know public text box i mean he invented tweet storms like we don't really need to get into this but like the guy is just like built for for something like farcaster or twitter and um he actually someone was talking about product market fit and and he actually had a really good frame on this and i can't believe i had never heard him say this before but it, it is it's crystal clear on me is product market fit is unmistakable. It's when the market is pulling the product out of the company faster than the company can build. It. And frames feels like that there's maybe something there, but I think we kind of need to give ourselves a few weeks, month, two months, to, and then kind of see, does that continue to sustain? Because if it does, then, then we know that's the thing. Otherwise it's, it's kind of like, great, win under the belt. It's, it's maybe something that'll continue to compound for us, but it's like onto, onto, to use a Bill Belichick term, onto Cincinnati, right? It's like, you just gotta, gotta focus on, okay, what's the next thing we can get a win on and, and, and keep the growth going. But yeah, overall, I'm, I'm, this is me being happy. That's great. Yeah. Rare, rare to, rare to see it's a, yeah, Belichick smiling or something. Um, but we'll just quickly before segueing into our, our next topic, 
what does it change the conversation on what Farcaster people thought of Farcaster as, you know, crypto Twitter, decentralized Twitter. Now what do they think about it as? Well, I, I think a couple things. So one, it's the first thing that we've done that really feels unique. Uh, granted, you, if you, as we talked with Antonio, you have some context, you go back to, um, you know, Facebook platform days, then it, it, it's actually nothing special. If anything, it's even more limited in functionality on a lot of dimensions outside of the, the kind of crypto economic angle. But I think now it's like, oh, okay, so this is not just a Twitter clone. Maybe all of the work that they've done over the last three years to one, have all of this crypto infrastructure underneath the hood, right? Like you use Farcast or you use Warpcast, the app feels kind of like Twitter, but there's a lot of stuff under the hood that Twitter doesn't have um, that uniquely enables things like frames. And then I think that the second thing is um, our go-to-market uh, was go after developers. I didn't go after um, influencers. I didn't go after kind of, I, I mean, I tried some of the bigger accounts when I first started that didn't work. And then so we quickly pivoted in, in 2021 and 2022 to just try to get a group of people who can code who also want to use Twitter every day. And you compound that for multiple years, and then you get to a place where you finally release a primitive that is extremely simple. And a developer, from idea to implementation in the feed in less than an hour, totally, uh, multiple examples of this, many such cases. But the um, contrast that's just like, oh, if you want to build something on Farcast, you got to build a mobile app. Like Apple requires you to get this thing called a done, done in Bradstreet number. It's just like this super slow, clunky process. And compare that to a frame where it's like, you like it, you go use Replit, you use AI to help you write it. And then boom, like it's, it's in the feed um, in 30, 60 minutes. And so that I think is a, is a big unlock. And, and, and then it's really tapped into our user base that the core user base is being kind of developer heavy. And I think there's also been this nice thing of like, uh, it's kind of a way to show off your development skills in the sense that like with this simple primitive, how complex can you be, right? Can you... Can you run Doom in, in a frame? Can you run a full game of chess in a frame? Can you figure out how to make it on-chain even though it's not supposed to be? So it's an opportunity for people to showcase their, their development ability. Um, all that being said, I, I think that is the thing that that has definitely captured the attention of a good chunk of crypto Twitter is, huh, this could actually be a, a fundamental new primitive. And, and it can be beyond Farcaster, right? I, I fully expect other platforms to copy it. It's, it's not like crazy. Open Graph works on both Facebook and Twitter from a link standpoint, like this is just a, a slight extension of that. And so I think if, if it changes the way crypto UX goes to market with consumers, um, then I think, yeah, we, we, we've done actually something important. And in, in that case, it's again, ours to lose, right? Like we won't have the, the kind of lead forever in terms of the ones being driving this. But if we keep moving quickly and listening to what our developers are asking us for, and then really focus on more importantly distribution and retention for those developers. Then, then you can actually really get the flywheel. Otherwise, people will lose interest. They'll they'll go to other places, the different primitives, and so got to just stay dialed in on that. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Quick math: the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, 
into one platform. That's one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems and improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 businesses have graduated to NetSuite, so do the math and make the move. Startup founders and execs running scaling businesses know all too well how easily their systems break down and expenses skyrocket. NetSuite is a proven way to cut costs and boost performance. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com zen. That's netsuite.com zen. netsuite.com zen. If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Moment of Zen listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code MOZ. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Let's segue into our topic for today, which is about startup ideas. So it's a good segue. We've just launched a new podcast called Request for Startups, which is going to do deep dives on different startup ideas that founders and investors have, but also more importantly, going to discuss the idea maze that people have traversed in different categories. I always thought it was a shame how, you know, we have so many talented people who don't uh, pursue a company because they don't have the right idea or, 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 or even more commonly when people do pursue, let's say they get passionate about healthcare or education or some other sector and they go and pursue an idea there. They don't really learn from the hundreds or thousands of people who've built in that space before, or who've spent a couple of years identifying where the bodies are buried. And so we keep making the same mistakes instead of like cumulatively learning from all the all the lessons that people have have uh, or, or all the things that people have tried, all the experiments, um, and so there's just so much redundancy, and so I hope that our podcast can inspire people with you know help them think of startup ideas they wouldn't have thought of otherwise, but or also say hey if they're going down you know they're looking you introduced me to a friend who's doing something in in uh, in, in healthcare, they can learn from the thousands of other people who have spent years uh you know talking to all different customers identifying their pain points etc um and maybe they can save some time you know picking the right customer the right problem etc so that that's the that's the goal of the podcast um and i thought today we would talk about some ideas that we've had but maybe we could start with just the the journey of how, how we picked our respective startup ideas for, maybe I'll ask you for our forecaster did you consider any other ideas seriously? I, I know that you briefly, you know, thought about other things high level, but uh, you know, what was the process of, of Farcaster coming to life? And then I'll do my companies. Yeah, so I 
been in Silicon Valley since 2013. I mean, I technically live in LA now, but I, I consider myself a Silicon Valley person. Um, and when I moved out, I thought about starting a company. I was coming out of consulting and I was going to do a survey software company because it was kind of like the idea that I most resonated with in my previous job. So I was a management consultant. We would do these private equity diligences, which later Tiger basically was hiring uh, all of these uh, Bain teams to to do in, during the last few years. That, that since has gone away. But you just get like up to speed on a new industry really fast. And one of the like primary things, literally called primary, you, the primary research is you'd run a survey online and you'd cut the survey and you'd make all these slides. Um, obviously, that that is like completely automatable. I actually don't think it's automated even today with the consulting. It's crazy. It's like you just pay this ridiculous rate to get these like smart people who graduated college with no meaningful skills who learned on the job. But I think as an aside, the reason that people hire consultants is so they can pass the idea off and then make a hard idea if they want to fire people. And they can say, the consultants told me to do it, not me. Um, so that's actually the, the business model. It's not because they're brilliant. Um, but the idea, I was like, okay, I'm going to do the survey company. And then the reality is I'm, I'm not a very good programmer. I'd like decent on the design and front end side at, for, for someone who's not professional, but like back end terrible. Uh, like, you know, it's all spaghetti code. So too bad chat GPT didn't exist. And at, at this point, chat GPT could do literally all of the stuff that I wanted to do. It would just like work out of the box with the standard subscription. There's actually no business there. So I ended up joining a SaaS company. Uh, Envoy, which is the visitor sign-in thing, was there for a year. I was the first employee, learned a lot about like go-to-market sales. I did everything that was non-technical uh, and then eventually made the swap over to Coinbase, worked at Coinbase for five years, worked my way up, did different roles there. Um, so I had a decent amount of just startup uh, ecosystem experience. And when I took the time off in 2019, kind of took a full survey of everything and said, uh, okay, I want to work on something ambitious and hard. I think I'd read like not the most recent Elon biography, but another one. And it was just like, okay, I want something that I could be working on for 10 years and really excited. I had like a reasonable expectation that the Coinbase IPO would do okay. I was like hoping for 10 billion turned into a hundred billion. So that was a little bit of a different change. Uh, but fortunately, Varun and I actually started working on the company prior to the IPO. I actually think that could have potentially been a, a really negative thing because it would have like changed potentially my opportunity cost versus I think one thing that's really important sometimes with starting is just getting started getting the inertia, the analysis paralysis in some ways, like you don't want to jump into just the first idea, but at the same time, like if no idea is good, you're just never going to end up starting something. Um, and I think while I was kind of going through that, uh, I was traveling and then COVID kind of extended this time, uh, spending a lot of time in chat groups, uh, you know, summer of 2020 was definitely an interesting one to be spending a lot of time reading about communism and, and uh, on Signal. But I was also kind of like, okay, I, I really want to start a company because I hadn't started a company, definitely a chip on my shoulder kind of thing. You know, a good friend of ours, uh, Alad Gill was just like, why would you start a company? Like that is like, that's a sign of desperation. And I was like, I just, it's something I have to do. And, and then he's like, okay, well, that, that's the other reason to start a company is like, you're either desperate or it's just like, you're obsessed with the idea of doing it. Um, but his advice, which I think was really good, was just like, okay, don't don't just like do a company for the sake of it. Like, cause you're two and you're grinding on whatever you better really want to wake up in the morning and do that. And so I, I definitely took that to heart and, and a couple of other, you know, people who I, I look up to kind of give me roughly the same advice. And so I think where I was really inspired was one, I, I reconnected with Varun. So it was, it was great to have like a co-founder or someone, you know, 
equal co-founder, like someone you really respect, I'd worked with them for, for years. So that was a huge de-risk thing. And I think we both have like a general set of intellectual interests that are, are they're kind of like pretty similar, at least in the, the kind of like company side of things. And so we just started kind of working through ideas together. And it was like, we do a notion doc, um, you know, kind of like one of us would do it. We pitch the other person. We'd kind of like try to poke holes in it. And, and we probably spent like four weeks doing that. And it was like, we'd do one a day or, you know, one every other day. Um, and just kind of see where our energy level was. We actually prototyped a few things. And, and what we found was we were naturally uh, gravitating towards crypto. We both worked in crypto. We both felt a little burned out on crypto. But I think we both came back to it with a fresh eye when you had a co-founder to say, hey, this is an area that we both know a lot about. We think is exciting. It's a frontier technology. It's, it's only going to get more kind of sophisticated and interesting. Uh, we have a competitive advantage there. And I think that the the... Other thing is if we could find an idea that we thought was like very interesting from like an intellectual and mission standpoint, and that could actually pair with us, that maybe we could go do that. And ultimately that's where we kind of got to Farcaster was, I think we both thought, okay, it would be really neat if you could actually have a social network that was akin to Twitter in 2012, when it was a much more open platform. Um, and actually crypto uniquely allows you to create the identity primitive in a way that you don't have any you know, trust and safety people in Washington, D.C. coming and saying, well, you need to do this or that. It's like, sorry, like, don't be evil. Sorry, I don't have that issue. I, I can't be evil. I literally, there's no way I can change this if you design the system right. And so that was kind of the idealistic thing is like, let's go get started on it. And I think what we we thought, and, and look, we're doing a social network, is social networks are is like, it's like a zero or a hundred. Like there is like no middling social network outcome. Like you can't be like, oh, well, I have 10 million ARR. Like it, it's just like, it's either it ends up, working or it doesn't at, from a venture scale standpoint. I think we both kind of wanted to do a venture scale. And so we kind of were like, okay, like Coinbase IPO coming up next year. Again, didn't think it would be as big. Uh, let's take a bigger swing, like do a social network. Like social network is definitely not in, like if you map the like kind of expected value of different startup ideas, um, it's, it's actually probably lower, but obviously if you, if you just have some irrational belief that you are somehow going to have the outlier outcome, then it's obviously a much bigger outcome than most things. And so that, that's kind of like where we ended up doing it. But I think a couple of things that we wanted to do differently, this was even before the interest rates really started to get kicked up, is one, we want to build the company really small. Uh, we both go through a lot of hyper growth at Coinbase. And I think that the 2010s with Zerp was just all about, you know, growth, 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 higher, 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 you're in San Francisco and all everyone wanted to do is they, they, to tell you, you know, kind of like how many employees you had was a little bit of like the measuring stick of like how, how important you are. And cause people don't really talk about revenue until you're, you're a public company. And I, employees are just problems, right? It's like, if, if you keep your team small and they're really senior, they're great. And then the moment you get to 50, 100, 200 employees and you've got all these junior people and you know, they, they want to do social justice causes and you have to like teach them. And it's like, no, we actually should just be focused on work. And like all, all these things that basically you end up having to do, which is a little bit daycare. Like, yes, people are working for you, but there's a lot more neediness when you have a much larger employee base versus keeping an elite, you know, SEAL team six level, like 12 people and just like be able to move really fast. And so that's what we wanted to do from the outset. And then I think with Zerp going away, it's, it's like, proven to be like the right strategy for us. And I think we're moving really fast right now. We're 12 people. Everyone's a staff level engineer other than myself. Um, 
But the other thing I think is really interesting about this, and, and maybe we can talk a little bit about this because I think we both have, have talked about, uh, and we have some friends who, who think through this like this, is, is just like, we can actually get to a cash flow positive place with our company if we keep the employee headcount really low, um, much, much faster. And in, in, in that world, maybe the, the social network, you know, shoot for a billion and you get to a hundred million or shoot for, uh, you know, a billion and you get to 10 million. But if you get to 10 million actual users and you have a really lean team and you were really smart, maybe that's a really great, you know, you could, you could be making $50 per user per year. Facebook makes 200 per user per year in the U S so $50 per user per year doesn't sound that crazy. It's a $50 million a year business or $500 million a year business. So, so I think like, that's a kind of mentality that we're also trying to bring is, is let's not commit the same mistakes, right? It's like Twitter, Twitter grew at all costs and then Twitter went public and Twitter never made a single profit in the entire time it was, it was public. Um, and so that was a quirk in time. And I think that the world is now in much more of a place of like, okay, like show me that you're a real business. And so kind of, all, I think all in podcast does a really good job of like kind of hammering this home over the last few years. Obviously Elon is the best example of it, but like, that is the new reality we live in. And so I think as we've approached building this company, it's like, we're not going to make the same mistakes that the 2010s. Like, could, could we go raise more money at, at some point? Or, you know, like that was like a very fashionable thing in the 2010s. It's like, oh, if, if someone's coming in with a term sheet, that's like, you know, three, five X what you were last time, you'd be stupid not to raise. And our view is we're not money constrained right now. We are we are idea and like actual like product market fit oriented constraint. And so I think that is a little bit of a different mode in terms of building a social network, because I think if you just look at the 2010s, all of the social networks that ended up working were just kind of like figure out how to monetize later, grow, 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 and kind of didn't really work out. Um, you know, yeah, look, they, they're still valuable companies, more valuable than the company I have, but I think uh, there's one winner in social networks, maybe two with TikTok, but it's like, Meta, TikTok, and then everybody else is kind of like a rounding error at this point. Um, so that, yeah. that, that's, I don't, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's a little bit of the history of like how I ended up working on what I'm working on. And one more question will go to me. If you weren't work, if you couldn't work on Farcaster, wh what else might you be working on or what spaces might you uh, deep dive on to see uh, if you had to start a company and you, it wasn't Farcaster? Yeah, it's interesting. I haven't spent that much time thinking about that recently. It's just like my head is so focused on yeah. Forecaster, which is generally a good thing. If I'm like, I'm spending too much time thinking yeah. about other startup ideas, then there's probably a yeah. bad sign. But I, I think, I, look, I had some ideas up front. Um, they were kind of crazy. Varun previously did a hardware startup with like audio stuff uh, for hearing aids. And he was like, absolutely no hardware. Like I'm not doing hardware. <laughs> um, so that was kind of rolled out. But I think I'm I'm dumb enough to like think that like, oh, I, I can figure out hardware. Like doesn't seem that hard. Um so I, I think something with hardware would be fun. I'm also in LA and like Julia is doing this nuclear company. And so I'm kind of like, I'm like the guy sitting in software looking over the <laughs> fence being like, oh man, that looks cool. Now yeah. the iteration cycle is like, I'm shipping a feature in like day to week. And it's like the, you know, the nuclear yeah. company is like on this like three year time frame, And it's just, so, so I, I, I understand that there's a little bit of naivete, like thinking about that. But that said, I think that the two areas that most interest me um, I love consumer products. So I think building something in consumer is probably where my heart is, but I also just think it's really fascinating, like food and how we get our food and it's so manual. And we have this huge issue from a population standpoint, thus all this illegal immigration, uh, that like 
basically American or second generation Americans, they don't want to work in like hard jobs. And so thinking about like, how do you actually do that for food in a way that you could actually increase qual average quality? Right. And so I think like there are a bunch of companies that raised a lot of money um, in the last like, you know, cycle, like uh, what is it? Bowery farms. And it's like all this indoor farming. And, and I don't know how much people in the, the audience know about indoor farming, but like massively uh, less requirements for water. You don't have to use pesticides because you don't have the pests inside in a world where you have really cheap solar panels and LEDs and LEDs tuned to the right amount of light. You potentially have, uh, you know, better light conditions for, for crops. I think there's still some issues around like, okay, like when you grow a plant outside the, the terroir of like where you're growing it, like creates more flavor and things like that. But that said, I, I think I would just find that infinitely interesting uh, for a very, very long time. If, I, if every day I was waking up and thinking about like, how do you make whatever vegetable that you're trying to grow, m you know, healthier, more organic, more flavorful, like that, that would be really cool. And I think it would be amazing because the end result is people, people, I, I love cooking personally and like sharing food with people is such an amazing experience. And so to think that you're potentially doing that even in a larger scale, um, that sounds cool. I, I don't know how great of a business it would be, but I think I would find it very, very stimulating. And then I think the other idea that I toyed, and this was definitely spiked by everyone. And I mean, it's kind of stupid, but, um, is I actually think Apple, the way to go after Apple, everyone tries to like do all this other stuff. You're never going to beat them on the mobile stuff. Just, um, they're just so far ahead. And so much of it is getting the processor to be battery efficient. And, and like you, the like consumers, just, the bar keeps raising. It's like every time there's a new iPhone, basically any high-end consumer, that's what they want. They don't want some Android phone that's like one or two generations behind, but you, you did something. And, and I think, you know, maybe Sam Altman can figure this out because he can work with Johnny Ive and raise enough money. But I, I think it's so, so difficult to compete with Apple on anything that is highly, highly uh, mobile and, and miniaturized because they're just, they're going to kill you on that. I think the area that they're vulnerable on is the Mac. And here, here's why. So obviously they have Apple Silicon, which is just like, you know, absolutely blowing everyone else away. It's blowing Intel away. But... I think that the average uh, developer in Silicon Valley is one, they don't actually sit with their lap, like they, they sit at a desk. And so I think that this like whole laptop thing, you could potentially go and say, hey, we're actually going to bring back the like desktop with the monitor as the primary thing. Everything syncs in the cloud anyways. And then you have an Apple laptop or whatever. But when you're sitting at your desk, we're going to provide you with this like amazing, um, you just like vertically integrated computer and, and, and you have to build the OS. So you, you take Linux, you fork it, you go hire like the best designers you can possibly hire. And you like hit lap Apple level, um, text kerning and all the anti-alias, like all the things that like windows doesn't do well or Linux because they, they don't think so. And you just like make it really desirable and beautiful. And then you charge something like $5,000 per computer. And all the venture back companies are like, okay, $2,500 for a MacBook, $5,000 for a computer, doesn't matter. And so the ARB is you just go after venture back startups that if their engineer is slightly more productive or happy, they're happy to pay the money. And you don't worry about Fortune 500. You don't worry about consumers. It's just focused on developers. And in the same way that like, you know, maybe a theme, if you focus on the developers and you just like win over these diehard people, but you also make it so that like designers want to use it because like it's, it just feels so beautiful anytime you're using this thing.
uh, then you naturally have this group of people who can build software that is more tailored to, to whatever you're doing, right? Like that's the reason the app store has worked. And obviously I was saying before with Farcaster, those developers for frames, it's because they're the user base. And so it's just like, I think businesses where you basically build a rabid fan of developers, like people who can like really, really code, and maybe it becomes a little less valuable with AI. That is the most interesting thing to me because that is a user base that people dismiss because they're like, oh, it's niche. It's kind of like, oh, let's go. Uh, social network for college students, like, oh yeah, like, okay. And then it's like, okay, yeah, they're the elite. Like you literally got the elite group of people in the United States and then just expanded from there. And so my view is anytime you can just like get a foothold in with developers and build a product that is just so well done for them, they, they, everyone wants to be a developer, right? Like the reason people started buying Macs is because professionals, like people who are making software, people who are making the movies, they used a Mac. So if you're some, you know, kind of lame rich guy, you're going to buy a Mac because you want a virtue signal that, yeah, what I do is also really high end and professional. And so I, I think you just play into that thing is like people like to make fun of developers, but the reality is developers are actually cooler than they get credit for. There's there's an ARB there, not every day, but like the, the their preferences uh, in, in aggregate, not not as much like desktop Linux, but more in terms of like they they adopt the future a lot faster. And so if you can kind of package it up in a sexy way, I think you could build something. So that to me would be how you build like the hardware company. And then obviously if you hire enough silicon people and uh, mobile people, you would you would actually then go tackle the mobile devices. And and now who knows? Like, I mean, the Vision Pro could actually be offering an opportunity to do this, but it actually goes back to my point is it's so difficult to compete with Apple. And, and the Vision Pro, we, we talked about this on a previous episode, the level of latency on the cameras that Apple has, it's like 12 milliseconds. It's, so it's just like nothing anyone else can compete on. And and when when they're finally at that level, Apple have like pushed the envelope like another generation. And so I think it's an, an absolutely stupid idea to go do it, but I mean, I don't know, that that, that was what I was probably interested in. So I, I don't know if that's useful advice for this, this podcast. It's like, here are some dumb startup ideas that probably won't make you money and you should not go do it, but that that's uh, what I was interested in. Chris Dixon. You let's know, let's talk about Serpentine. Uh, yeah, well, Chris Dixon's I, 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 uh, your notion was like whatever engineers are doing on the nights and weekends is what everyone else is going to be doing in the next ten years. To just affirm your point, um, well, I'll, I'll briefly give my my history of startup ideas. So many college students have have dumb ideas, uh, you know, have dumb startup ideas, and I was no exception. Um, you know, they they just college kids often do the events idea or the pizza idea or the dating idea. Uh, you know, sometimes you, you get lucky, but most of these ideas tend to not work. I, I did a Twitch for music, specifically rapping. Uh, Twitch was blowing up at the time, and I just thought live video was going to be a thing across multiple platforms. And I didn't really have an understanding of business. It was just a cool idea. We raised a little bit of money, and that was like my entry into the startup world. Um, and then my next idea was actually Ryan Hoover's idea, and I was the first person besides him. It was Product Hunt. And that was just a side project that that started to blow up. We never sorry, really... I, sorry for trashing product hunt on Farcaster. <laughs> no, it's okay. It, I mean, it, I think it, I think at this point it's kind of cringe. I think when yeah, it when yeah. it first launched and when you were involved on it, it yeah, was yeah. like I checked it every day. So, yeah, so it, 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 it I think it's since kind of lost maybe yeah, some. No, it, it lost its soul when 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 uh, when 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 Ryan left. Although I, I love I love Josh Buckley, I love the team there, but uh, it. Um, you know, it's, it's sold, it's spun out, it, it's had a few, you know, uh, it's it's just, it's different now. Um, but in 2014, it won Startup of the Year. 
in uh, it, it sort of the crunchy or whatever. It, it was uh, it was growing phenomenally. A16Z led the Series A, and we created a lot of value in that our, our user growth was continuously going up. We never figured out how to monetize in a real venture backed way. Um, and um, one thing we, in retrospect, I think what we should have done, and I think that's maybe what they're trying now is tried to uh, turn into for, go from what's what's new to what's best, be like almost a Yelp for for product like wire cutter, but more decentralized and, and scalable or, or G2, like uh, sort of, you know, rating all these products so that whenever you look for something, you go to product hunt as opposed to right now you go just because your friend sends you a link and says, uh, vote me. Um, so that's a product hunt journey. Um, on deck started as a also a side project. I was just looking for a co-founder for my next thing. So I set up these dinners for people looking at co-founders. For a few years, it was just a meetup group. But then during COVID, people really started to need communities, uh, online communities, cohort-based courses became a, became a, 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 like a very popular thing. All these companies spun up and we scaled really fast. Um, but that, uh, that cohort-based course turned out to be a COVID-inspired trend. People just had more time, more money, sort of like Clubhouse. Um, and, and all those companies kind of did a different business model uh, or, or, you know, pivoted. Um, and and on deck was no exception. It just leaned into being a fund, which is in some ways what Product on also became. Um, and then Village Global was, was started with a few co-founders, and that was based on a few different experiences. One related to me was that I was a scout at a, at a fund, and I just thought scouts were, or we thought scouts were an interesting um, sort of format to do a way to do venture. Uh, IE founders want to take money from other founders, and that was only starting to increase. That was early on. You know, Jack Altman just raised his announced his fund today. He's obviously a great founder. People want to respect people who've been in the arena uh, or who are still in the arena, and so we did a venture firm like really going uh, all in on scouts. Um, and then Turpentine uh, was really in the beginning. It was started as a passion project. I, I love podcasts. Um, I'll, I'll do them for the rest of my life. Um, and it, it took a few things coming together for me to realize that this could be an actually big business. Um, you know, one was seeing the rise of like the Lenny Richitskis and Harry Stebbings, these uh, Packy McCormicks all doing seven figures on their own. Um, and then, you know, realizing there was this business industry dive that sold for $500 million. That was just a collection of publications in different niches. So appreciating just how valuable business media was, um, how high the premiums are and, wanting to create a collection of these. Um, but th then also you know, seeing the Mr. Beasts of the world who are not just um, getting audiences, but also building new businesses on top of that audiences or le leveraging the those audiences to invest, et cetera. And so I, I came to just appreciate that. We talked about this last episode, the value of, of audiences and niche audiences and high spend audiences. And so I thought it would be a great platform for anything else I wanted to do. But, but it wasn't until even more recently when I discovered Tegas, Tegas, this expert network that records the, uh, the calls and basically makes over $100 million a year selling access to these transcripts um, for, for investors to help diligence companies and trends that I was like, hey, a podcast is just a transcript uh, or, or an article. Whenever you, know, you interview someone for an article, you collect notes, that would be a transcript. And so what if I built a media company that found a profitable way to generate all these transcripts that you could put behind a paywall uh, and that might be valuable to investors. So you make money both on advertisers and you make money uh, uh, on, on the back end from you know, selling it to investors. Or um, So th that's that's how I thought about with Turpentine. And what, one framework, and then we'll get into other startup ideas I'll, I'll run by you, is this idea of founder market fit. 
like it just so happens that for Farcaster, I feel like you're the only person who could do it at the level that that you're doing it at, right? Like you understand crypto and social media or, or Twitter particularly, like better than anybody else. You spent the last decade, you know, working in crypto and uh, you have the credibility of Coinbase, et cetera. And you've been obsessed with Twitter and Twitter culture. And so you have this unfair advantage of that idea. I have been obsessed with podcasting and audio and media and build communities and no one else is going to build Turpentine the way, the way that I'm building it. And so uh, that is one framework for how to think about startup ideas. For, for Farcaster, you've spent the last decade in Twitter, uh, in crypto and being obsessed with Twitter. Like who else is going to be build a decentralized, um, you know, a crypto Twitter or decentralized social media? Like you're one of the best people in the world to go do that. Like for me, I've been involved in podcasting and I've been involved in tech and I know all these different niche verticals and the experts in those verticals and I'm obsessed with building communities. Um, like who's going to build Turpentine better than me? Not that many people. And so that, that's one framework for how to think about pursuing a startup idea is like, where do you have an unfair advantage or you or your co-founder have an unfair advantage? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's very teal like right it's like what's your secret what is the unfair advantage that you have for the startup i i i tend to th say it's like okay there are different types of startups where you have like the the founder being the the kind of like secret uh you know weapon in terms of like a like an arb that the founder has versus like that the arb exists and other people can go do it so obviously you know the more the founder has experience in there the better i think there's a little bit of a danger there because if you're going to look at something like PayPal and then Square, it's like a classic thing. People who are too close to, to financial stuff can tell you all the reasons why it won't work. And then there's there's like kind of almost like this willful ignorance that you need in order to actually just kind of say, no, like this is how it should work. And we're just going to kind of go figure that out, um, which, which there's an irony here in that a lot of the early PayPal people were, other than maybe Teal, who, who actually was relatively early to Bitcoin, uh, they just like dismissed crypto. Right. It's like uh, roll off at Sequoia or Keith, like they, they, they kind of like, we're like, ah, none of this, you know, it's like, it, so, so sometimes when you actually have too much experience in an area, it, it, it anchors you too much to how things work versus how they should work or, or the, the kind of new disruptive innovation. So always a little bit dangerous. I, I think it's better on average though, to have more expertise than not. Um, and I think the second thing is like, I, I'm a very big believer in, in Mark's and, you know, his RIP, his blog, but like the, the only thing that matters, Mark Andreessen archives, worth going to read it. And he walks through the very basic thing we've talked about on the podcast before, but it's worth repeating. There are three things, team, product, market. Okay. If you have the A plus team, A plus product, and the market's bad, doesn't matter. It's zero. Flip it around. You have an okay team. Okay, product, but it is a market that is absolutely ripping picks and shovels. Like just people are banging down your door. And I don't think Coinbase was a bad team or a bad product, but I I don't know if like Coinbase, like we were the A plus team relative to all other teams in Silicon Valley. And the product certainly wasn't A plus relative to all the other teams in Silicon Valley, but it was by far the best team and product in a market that just took off. And so I think. That is the hardest thing. And this is where I always give advice to entrepreneurs is, is market. So, so ideas are less about the, the product you want to offer and the, you know, the team that you have. And it's much more about like, what's the market opportunity? Why now? And then the second question is, how are you going to get distribution? Which I think Teal 
is the first one to kind of make this popular. It was a bit contrarian because there was this big push towards oh, engineers, like you don't need you don't need sales. And it's like, no, all companies, no matter what you're doing, require sales. If you're selling to consumers who aren't necessarily paying you, it's, it's called marketing. And if you're selling to enterprises, that's that's literally sales. Like they give you a contract and give you money. And, and there's a kind of blend between. And so I think good good entrepreneurs, or, or if, you, if you're thinking about going into a business, you should have a very crisp answer for why now. And you can tell the people who, who don't actually have this because they like Google how to do a business plan. And then they like throw these like TAMs that just total addressable markets that just sound really big. And they actually, they, they, they think that they pattern match like the wrong, it's like this like HBS terrible, like uh, business school version of like how to do startup evaluation versus just like, and this is where Paul Graham, I think really nails it. And, and Chris's point of what you do on the weekends is like, no, do you deeply understand a thing like an area, a vertical that whether you worked in it or not, you've, you've become obsessive about it and you have a, you have an anomalous insight to use the Keith term. Um, about that that vertical that you said no one has actually realized this and and that actually comes through to your point about oh if you have this experience in this area and this experience in this year especially when you have that interdisciplinary like you, you cross two things when, when you're crossing two different fields that's often when you find that anomalous insight because most people only have experience in one or the other right and so i think that is the the biggest thing when you know requests for startups thinking about things, it's it's like okay, what what is the anomalous insight? And that anomalous insight usually means how am I going to get customers cheaply? Because it's 2024, and, and I was actually talking a little bit about this today with why Frames has worked so well. Frames provides distribution. It's super simple. You can get it up and running, and then people use your app. You don't have to get them to install it, like because it just meets them where they are, and then you immediately have feedback and you have users, right? People are putting frames out and they're getting thousands of users because we don't have that many users to begin with, but those are many more users than they would have had otherwise trying to grind you to install a mobile app in the store or sign up for their website or something like that. And so I think people way underrate distribution as the, 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 there's like this celebration of like the brilliant inventor of like, I have the idea, like the, the thing, the product, the thing I want to do. And it's like, no, 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 like, uh, Amateurs talk strategy and then like professionals talk uh, logistics. It's like amateurs talk about like the, the, the vision for the product and where they want it to go. Professionals talk about how the hell the hell are you going to get users? And it's usually something that someone else hasn't done because if, if other people have already done it well, it'll be armed out. Everyone else will do it. And so that, that, that's actually, I think, you know, I, I talk about this actually on Farcaster quite a bit because it's a founder's channel and it's, it's just kind of focuses like, you should be shipping a lot faster and you should be really just focused on how to get users. Like beg, bar and steal. I onboarded the first 400 users to Farcaster via Zoom call, right? Brutal days, like eight, eight, 10 onboardings a day. And I did that for like a month and a half. And, and the reason was, it's just like, it's like getting out there and just get, getting beat up every day. People, they, they say, oh, this is great. You get them through onboarding, onboarding's clunky. Okay, improve that. And then they don't come back to you. Like they told you to your face that they wanted to use this. And then next day they're busy and they're just like, see ya. And so, so contact with reality and actually really understanding how to get your target customer, whether it's a consumer or a business, that is like, I think by far the most important thing. Yeah. And one sort of framework doesn't work for everybody, but 
if you're a younger founder and you're just starting out in your in your career and you don't have an unfair advantage anywhere, it might be better for you to take more market risk than an older founder who's got a ton of experience and knows how to build a business and maybe wants to take more execution risk. Because and so just to you know explain those more, if you're a younger founder, you know maybe in 2016 you go into crypto because there's less competition as opposed to going to something like healthcare where you're fighting people who've got you know, two decades of experience and that experience is immediately relevant. But if you're going into a new field, you're on an even playing field with everybody else. And maybe, maybe it's no coincidence why in, in new fields, there are these you know, younger founders who are, you know, social network with, with, with Zuck, et, et cetera. The other, other examples, I'm sure, within, within crypto, either on the investing side and, and on the founding side. Um, and Justin Khan talks about this, uh, you know, when he was younger, like Justin TV, you know, m made more sense. And when he's older, uh, you know, Atrium, the law firm made more sense, although that didn't that didn't work out. So maybe that's uh, not not proving the the theory, but um, that that's one interesting, interesting framework. Yeah, I think that the other interesting thing is Sam has said this, Sam Altman and, and Daniel Gross, is that it seems like startup founders are trending older. So when we were doing stuff in our 20s, it was like very in vogue that like, oh, drop out, don't go to school, like you're 19, great, here's a huge term sheet. Uh, and I think things are trending higher. It's not to say young people can't do stuff, like absolutely not. I think it's just um, the stakes are higher, right? Consumers have higher expectations for products, right? So like outside of some major new platform shift, which Vision Pro may be, but I think generally when things are mature, like mobile, like the experience you need to have for your mobile app to get a user to use it every single day, like the table stakes are way higher than they were 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, so that, that those greenfield are, are not there. And so I think it's much harder for a young person to, to kind of like be able to take advantage of like, because a lot of the people who were able to do these startups early benefited from major macro tailwinds, Collison's, fintech like literally just like people going online to you know e-commerce like the chart benedict evans always shows is like what percent of of like total retail commerce is, is done online it's just like that's that's the thing you index on and so um i think that is is important that goes back again to market selection but i think that the other thing and this is my advice i usually give to younger people is if you have something you're obsessed with start startup if you're young and you want to start a startup, but you don't actually have anything uh, you're obsessed with, that's the worst because that's basically you wanting to be a startup founder because it sounds cool at parties. Um, and you're actually kind of like the worst person. Like I, I met that, this type of person in San Francisco. They raise some round from some whatever VC, and then they think they are so self-important and hotshot. And it's like, okay, like doesn't matter. And, and, and the, the answer I would give you, and this is someone who's both like, you know, I went my first decade in Silicon Valley, I, I, I wasn't a founder. Right. And so I kind of had to navigate that. And, you know, you, you have your chip on your shoulder or self-confidence. And then now I have, and now I'm just like, what, like, there is no glamor in being a founder. Like it's all like a LARP in terms of like the, the how, how you position it. It's, it's glamorous when you're successful, sure. But like most of the time, otherwise, it's what Elon says. It's like eating glass and staring into the abyss. And so I think you need a level of obsession with the idea that you're going to work on because otherwise it's extremely just like brutal. And I think you are far better off as a younger person 
working for 18 months, two years for a high growth startup. It doesn't even have to be that experience of a founder, right? Like Brian Armstrong was the first real company he was doing. It wasn't like he's like, oh, I, you know, here's my 20 years of experience doing this. He was figuring it out on the fly. I'm figuring it out on the fly. But the amount of the, the, the thing about growth at a company is your rate of learning. If, if you're that type of person, just you, you could peg right to whatever the company is doing. And you running your own company, yes, you're going to learn a lot of stuff, but you're not actually learning any of the high growth stuff because your company is not growing. So like, yeah, you got to like go do rippling and like all these other things that you have to do as a founder that are not glamorous at all. Whereas if you're an early-ish employee and you just kind of like work your ass off at one of these, these kind of kind of companies that has a potential for growth, the, the best thing is, let's say it doesn't work out, you spend 18 months or two years now you have a way better framework for, okay, the do's and don'ts of how to do the company, how I want to do my company differently. You probably met colleagues that you think are good, potentially a co-founder, especially if you're not technical. And uh, you probably have a network because you are giving it in your all and you're working really hard. And the founder at that company has VCs he knows or she knows, and they're willing to introduce you. So I'm, I'm like way, way more bullish on, unless you have something that you're really, really passionate about, is just get a job. Don't get a job at Fang. Like it's worthless. Like you, 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 you know, some people end up doing fine, but it's it's a way bigger anti signal to me of like getting a comfortable job at Facebook or or Google because like you just talk about rate of learning. You you get like no, you learn like corporate politics, um, and so much much prefer like people who go and work at a startup, grind it out, even if it doesn't work, because they just have the right mindset um, when either going and starting their own company or then potentially joining a startup, you know, the second startup you join ends up. So that's, that's generally my advice. To, to me, uh, the biggest anti-signal or one of them is, uh, and you, I think you feel differently than me, is going to business school. Oh yeah, I, I think business school is awful. I think business school works if you were in the military or did teach for America. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, like, it, it's like, what are you doing? It's a vacation. Yeah, and it's, or, or like if you're trying to start a company, at, at least business school to me is anti-signal because it shows that you're not first principles enough. You're, you're not actually evaluating what are you getting out of this experience. And no, even worse, you are you. looking for a credential to help give yeah. you something in the market that guess what? No one is looking at there. There are no VCs. It is a you, you are living in a 25 year old out of date version. 20 years ago, I'm sure you could have had an MBA yeah. and like a certain set of VCs would have said, oh, you know, HBS, GSB, great. Now you just like I, any VC I know would look at you and you have an MBA and would be like, uh, okay. Now, look, if you end up starting a company and you, you have some traction, people will throw away that. But if you think somehow the credential is going to help you yeah, outside of traction, absolutely not. It's a negative. Like it, it's a thing where I, I think anyone would like, just look at it as an anti-signal. The moment you start talking about where you went to business school, people would just be like, uh, what? Yeah. If, if you got an MBA after 2018, because Catherine Boyle, I think, got one in like 2015 or something. So I'll forgive her. But after 2018, I, I, I won't hire you. I won't befriend you. When I have a daughter, I won't, I won't let her date you. I'm, uh, <laughs> I, I just, uh, I can't do MBAs. That's my... Well, uh, well, here, here's the thing. MBAs are great worker bees for people who actually have startup experience. And so my favorite story is we had a, an amazing biz ops guy at Coinbase and he came in as an extern. So he was still at the consulting firm 
and he he was going to be there for six months, and then he was going to go to business school. I think he got into Stanford or something. So so he brilliant, brilliant kid. Um, and Dave Farmer is the guy I was working with. We we worked really hard on getting this guy to stay, and uh, and he did. And it was like you know he, he really felt like he was throwing away his career or whatever. Uh, ended up doing really well from the Coinbase IPO, <laughs> like like really really well. Um, and so I just, I always give him a nudge every time I see him and be like, Hey, still, still want that MBA from Stanford. Like that, that degree would look really great while you're, you're thinking about buying your first house. Whereas like, you know, so it is, it is, it's a risk averse, uh, outdated credential that for certain, and I have a blog post on this. So like I, I, there are legitimate reasons to go get an MBA and, and for certain people, it makes a ton of sense, but I think people should just be more open to saying like, Hey, you know what? I'm burned out from three years working in private equity. I want a vacation, right? Look, I, I, I took I took a year and a half off after Coinbase, so like I get it. Like uh, you you, but just just don't try to pretend it's anything different. It's just like when you go to business school, you are taking two years of compounding in the workforce uh, at a prime period of your life because usually people are going when they don't have kids, and you could have otherwise been moving ahead in whatever field you were wanting to do. So, yeah, if, I, if anyone's listening and thinking about going and getting an MBA, absolutely not. Or here, go read the blog post on my blog. <laughs> Good and bad reasons to get an MBA. <laughs> I, I agree. And, you know, this segues to one of the ideas I would be working on or I would consider working on if I wasn't working on Turpentine is uh, disrupting higher education in some form. And I, you know, flirted with it at, at, at OmDeck, though we, we ended up focusing on sort of, you know, continuing education. But um it just it's it makes me so mad that uh, these universities are so unaccountable and so expensive and just kind of ripping off their students. Um, but uh, you know when you spend some time in that space, you realize that people aren't paying for the education. So your instinct is you would think, oh, the way to disrupt it is to do Udemy or you know sort of online education or you know, take that part out. But actually, what they're paying for is is the credential and the prestige, and that's really hard to do unless you can partner with uh, the Teal Fellowship, I've always said they should go start a university, like a head-to-head university, or, some, or Elon, or so, someone who's got more prestige than, than, than Harvard or, uh, or Stanford. Um, like, I don't think UATX is going to, you know, be able to compete head-to-head, although I think it's a noble effort. Um, but uh, another approach, you know, Mark Andreessen and Ben Horowitz had a podcast on higher education that talked about this, is just competing with the assessment uh, that could maybe, you know, make a better IQ test, make a, make a better test that measures IQ and conscientiousness and make it popular for people yeah, but to take. I, I think that's, that's like part of the, just like being good at recruiting, right? Like you, you can quickly figure that out. Right. And so like, I don't know, I can tell within the first five minutes of, of an interview, like, is this person even have a shot? Um, and it, even then it's like a 50, 50 after that. But like, I, it probably doesn't even need five minutes. Usually, usually it's like within two. And yeah. so it's like, I, I do the 30 minutes because it's a polite thing. But like, I, I, I know it's either, yes, okay, let's move move on to the next step. Or this is a no, and I'm going to be polite and, and do it. So I, I, I think I'm just skeptical that like, because I think there's a correlation with people who are good at tests. And I actually don't think being good at tests is is actually the trait that is like persistence and grit like yes there's there's some overlap but i actually think like 
it's a different skill set actually that is to go do hard things in the real world and and a lot of that is like how do you how do you regulate your emotions right like how do you work well with other people like i, I think those are um harder because if you just strictly focus on raw horsepower um there are a lot of assholes who are really really smart because i think that they're really smart uh they don't work well with other people they um you know don't have common sense right like they're like off the charts on on the the like science material and then you like kind of like what like this is how so i i think they're in their different roles obviously when when you want to hire those people for certain things but yeah i i i'm i think that the 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 graduate university stuff outside of the like the regulated regulatory capture of law school where it's like you need to go to law school in order to become a lawyer but like business school you don't get like a like a thing that's like regulatory capture it's just kind of like a credential and in theory the idea was that the network was good it's like oh well i have this i'm gonna get another job that doesn't doesn't work like that i mean if you're working in finance and consulting it's completely different but i think if like i think the interesting stuff is is tech right like startups and and people building new things those are the outlier outcomes happen um so if you're interested in that, then then this is completely worth nothing, like the, the MBA. Whereas if you if you want to go play in the like more East Coast business game, then fine. But yeah, the th thing I've been obsessed with, and we'll do a deeper dive with Elad. He said he'd come on Moment of Zen, and he's been thinking about LinkedIn a lot um, as well. Um, is 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 reputation, and um, you know, we just mentioned hiring, like we're hiring for a bunch right now and I'll get a bunch of resumes or LinkedIn's and I'm, I'm, I'm not as good as interviewing as, as you are in the sense that it's actually, it's very hard for me to tell the, the different, like what, what I know that's very frustrating is when I'm talking to people, I wish I knew what people I respect who know them think of them. Um, like before I'm doing, like I, I value just references more than the interview. I'm curious mm. if you feel differently because references have seen them over a longer period of time and, the interview people can present well or present poorly, but that might not reflect their like actual work product. Um, or, you know, how do they do under pressure? What's their output, et cetera. And maybe I just need to ask better questions to get to the to root of it. But it, it always, to me, is just so striking how um, the reputation market is, is black market. It's not, it's not legible. And the world is so inefficient as, as a result or the sort of the, the marketplace doesn't, it's, it's so inefficient as a result of it. And there has to be ways to make, uh, to close the gap there in terms of, um, no, I, I, I definitely think that you have something there in terms of like that space. Some, there's some product that would exist to improve it. I, I I've told you this is that my just general view is, um, reputation is, is its own version of like a currency and and how it's distributed and how you communicate that it's it's deeply deeply lindy from a human standpoint right it's, it's basically gossip and it's like that's how you regulate the tribe and so i think that is a um very hard thing to break it's like it's been compounding for, for as long as humans have been basically been living in in groups even before we had language and so i i think breaking it apart, like atomizing it in the way that, you know, the society has atomized the the family and the individual, maybe, I mean, we live in that society. So if anyone's going to be able to figure it out and, and do it, probably you there. But I, but I think 
in just having done so many references and, and, and things like that. And I actually generally find references are not particularly useful. It's, it's like the only time they really help are if I really trust the person on the other side. So I like, I have a personal relationship that I know they're really legit. Like they have really high standards. Then that reference is really powerful. Um, in terms of if they like, you know, I might be a little bit wavering, which is usually an absolutely like you waver a bit. No, like it's just like, don't hire. Um, but if someone who really you think is amazing, thinks they're good, then it's like, oh, maybe they had a bad interview. Like, let me, let me see if I can figure something out. And then the only thing I think references are good for is like, you know, they, they sexually harassed employees and like, <laughs> that's what they had to leave. Like, so, so like you, you find that stuff out because obviously all that's under NDA and you can't get that. And so that's, that's the black market. And it's like hard people to be able to put that. So maybe, maybe you figure it out, but I would think those are the two things I find. And then generally I just... I find it very interesting when I'll talk to people and, and I'm happy to like reveal one of like the questions I, I ask this on Farcaster every time we do an AMA, what motivates you? Just really basic. And it, it is a question I've asked every interview since uh, I've been doing interviews and I have a decent baseline now on the BS. Like, is that an authentic answer? Like, are you confident enough? Are you giving me an answer that I want to hear? And you quickly figure out the people who are actually comfortable enough to just be like, yeah, this is this is the thing that I'm optimizing for from a professional standpoint, at least in an interview. Um, and so like, I have a few questions like that. And I, I've definitely made bad hires, but I actually made bad hires more in the, the not, not actually Farcaster because I just haven't had that many. Um, but I think the, you know, my time at Coinbase, it was a inexperience. So you have to make bad hires to understand what a bad hire is. And then I think that the other thing is not being willing to fire fast enough, um, which, which sounds really harsh, but actually is a much better scenario to within the first month, month and a half, no more than three months. Like you should really have high conviction that the person is working out because it's actually worse for that person to stick around because they kind of know that they're not doing well. You don't like working with them. And then it's like, you're kind of kicking the can down the road. And I found that if you treat people fairly, you give them good severance and then you just move on. You, you basically don't think about them again. And then you actually run across them in life. And they were like, I really appreciated like that you were, you were very transparent and forward and, and you know, paid severance and, and you help them try to find a job. And then you give it a reference where you're saying, hey, didn't fit with us, but they actually had good, you know, give them the positive feedback. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think it's like, and I think we're veering from the startup ideas, but I think in terms of just hiring, it is um, so much goes back to also just like, where did you work before? Because did that place have high standards? Like that's, that's actually the easiest way to, like, I could care less where you went to college. It's like, did you work at Stripe? Okay. You worked at Stripe. What did you do at Stripe? Do I know people who worked with you at Stripe? Right? Like, and then you can quickly figure out like, okay, is this person legit or not? Um, whereas if you work at Google, I have no idea if you were good. Like, yes, yeah. you are, you are a better than average person because Google has a bar that is higher than average, but Google is a huge company and there are a lot of ineffective people at Google, right. And, or people who basically kind of exist and then just like work within the political structure. Yeah. I'll, uh, I'll close on, uh, two, two last startup ideas and kind of frameworks behind them. One is uh, Mark's, Mark Andreessen's framework, which is that there's no bad startup ideas, only startup ideas that are too early. So look at things that have repeatedly failed um, and say, hey, you know, is is now, is something different now that might enable it to succeed, you know, the classic sort of, you know, uh, 
you know, uh, Webvant, Instacart, or, you know, uh, pets.com, et cetera. Um, pseudonymous or anonymous apps like Secret and Yik Yak um, and, and others have, have gone super viral, um, but they just haven't been able to sustain and, and really, you know, become durable. Um, but I feel like there's something there, you know, uh, in, in uh, pseudonymous social networks uh, that, that could work at, at some point. I know you've, you've thought about that a lot. Yeah, I'm more bearish. I think I think basically people want status. They yeah. people use social networks for for two things primarily, and then three with the rare exception like a Twitter. So the first thing they'd use it for is entertainment. That's what most people are doing. Um, they say that they're learning news or whatever, but the reality is they're there for the dunks. Um, they like drama. The second one is to meet people, which usually means also to date people, which means then to hook up with people like that or find a mate. Like that, that's a very basic human desire. And then the last one, which is a little different because most people aren't playing this game, but we definitely can see a lot of these people happening on Twitter. This happens on Farcaster, Instagram, status. It's just like, okay, I want to be considered higher status in the world. And I'm going to grind up on Twitter and I want people to hear what I have to say. I want smart people and fancy people to like my stuff. And yeah, that's it. And so I think what's challenging about pseudonymous networks is you acquire a bunch of status but then you don't get to benefit from it in the real life. Yeah. And then, so what happens is inevitably people then want to dox themselves or get doxed and they like whatever. And, you know, I, some people don't want to be, but I actually think a lot of times they're very happy that it happens because it actually increases their status even more that they were so impactful as an Anon that now they're getting doxed. Shout off Beth. But um, <laughs> I, 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 you know, and I think in his case, he actually, you know, it was a, like a malicious, but, but point being is, the the conversion rate, like the, you know, you talk about like, okay, when you try to launder money, there's some percentage of the money that has to be given up in order to do the laundering. And it's like, what's the conversion rate from a non-synonymous to real in terms of status? Because I actually don't think it's a one-to-one conversion. Um, yeah. I think if anything, it's like you you quite lose a lot of the, the you know, the sheen of, of the Anon, because you're now just a normal person. You don't feel like an idea. You feel like just like, like a person. So. Yeah, I agree. But there is a reason why they go viral in the first place, because there's information that can only be shared. So you you know, uh, it's the gossip thing you talked about earlier. And so there, there's gotta be something there that integrates and maybe it's a, maybe it's group chats or networks that combine. And maybe that's what Twitter, Twitter is to some degree, right? Twitter does have a bunch of, you know, yeah, so I have, I have an interesting idea if, you're, if you want on that vein. Um, so I think someone will build this at some point. Uh, we don't plan to do it at Farcaster, but I think it's an interesting idea. Is chat groups. Um, basic thing is you can see everyone who's in the group, but you do not have anyone's name. There's like some name that's auto-generated, like, you know, whatever. And maybe an avatar that's auto-generated, you can GPT. And then every so often... The whole thing shuffles again. So there's like this little bit of like entropy is like no one actually quite, and you kind of know who it is. Like if you're in a group with AGM, like you definitely know it's AGM. <laughs> I don't care for this. Uh, like, yeah. uh, you know, but I think there's like a level of freedom that would come where everyone kind of knows it's like, it's, a, it's like an enforced Chatham house rules. It's like, this can't leak. So I can actually take, you, you know, an intimate chat group um, gets to a level of trust of like, I don't know, six or seven out of 10. Right now, close friends is different, but like the, the kind of like you meet some people and then you get put in a check group with them and 
you start to develop a relationship in terms of trust. Like the longer the chat group goes for and it doesn't leak and hasn't blown up on you. And it's like, okay, like I'm going to get there. But I actually think some version of like you're, you're actually flipping it so that it's you can't screenshot it. Right. Because like literally there are no names next to it. So complete plausible deniability. And it's kind of automatically shuffling things up a little bit for you. I think would be a really interesting uh, chat app company. But as someone who's been working on direct messaging, I can promise you the amount of grind to actually make a chat app that people are actually going to want to spend hours in per day, the way you spend time in Signal or stuff like that is, is really hard in 2024. I actually think it'll get a lot easier once some of these LLMs get better because I actually think it's just like software will get a lot easier to make, like, like baseline decent software. But then my fear is what, what will happen is consumers' expectations for what software does will go even higher. And so it's like you basically will always be, yes, the, the, the basic stuff can exist. And maybe you scratch an issue because you actually hit the basic social thing and the app doesn't need to be that good. And, and then you can go improve it later. But I think that would be the hardest thing is you might have this novel mechanic and it might not be novel enough to overcome the like rough edges of the UX, right? And so that, that, that's, that's like where I'd argue against that idea. But if you're a terrific engineer and you have a real eye for detail, something around that. And I think like you, like you pointed out, I think the public pseudonymous networks don't work as well, but if it, if the pseudonymous networks are more chat based and, and you can actually have many of them, um, it's less about status and more about like letting yourself be more, you can be more expressive in a lot of different contexts without, yeah. without fear. Right. In the same way that if I have a conversation with you, that I lets me like, there are a lot of signals I'm getting from body language in, in person, if, even though if I don't know you that well, that I can actually kind of gauge, you know, maybe we're having alcohol. So like th there's a level of like, okay, we're both stepping it up in terms of like willingness to say what we want to say. And I think the, um, that experience doesn't exist in a digital form. Because, you know, screenshot, like leak, cancellation, all that kind of stuff. I think people, it takes a lot longer to build trust. And so the degree that you could increase trust faster with people and increase the range of topics over to the window of what they would be willing to say, that could actually be interesting. Yeah. If anyone wants to work on that, message me because I'm all day in, in chat groups and uh, would love to use a chat platform that I own if I'm going to be in, uh, in chats all day. Um, I, I love that. Um, last idea I'll, I'll give, and then we'll, we'll get out of here is this, uh, this concept of leveraging sort of, uh, or utilizing otherwise idle assets. Like uh, think about it is like Uber and Airbnb are marketplaces that figured out how to utilize an idle asset, right? Like Airbnb turns spare bedroom into cash and Uber turns your car into extra cash. But the most valuable asset in the world that's underutilized isn't cars or bedrooms. It's it's people, it's labor. There, there are billions of people in the world whose talents are underutilized. People with same IQ and potential for success who get paid 100x more or less just based on where they live. And so I think there's going to be a number of labor marketplaces that, that emerge based off that. Our good friend, uh, Jonathan Swanson, built uh, Athena, which is uh, uh, executive assistance in the Philippines. I, I use, I've had one for five years. It's amazing. You, you, you have it too. If you want an executive assistant on the cheap, you should use it. And so I wonder if there are a number of other marketplaces. I'm a, I'm a partner in, in uh, my friend, Sean Linehan's new business. Uh, that's um, it's like Athena for engineers. He, he built a company 
for the last few years and he had a remote engineering team in in Vietnam and he was like these people are almost as good as US engineers and it's so much cheaper and if you're building Farcaster or OpenAI you need like the world's best engineers but most startups are just building a website and a or an app and differentiating via some other way and a remote engineering team might actually be better bang for the buck for for what they're trying to do so if anyone's looking for engineers uh we'll have a link to to it's called Squad you, you know remote engineers you, you you should use that but uh, but yeah, one I'm excited about labor marketplaces or, or niche labor marketplaces. Uh, there's another one for oil and gas industry that Jeff at Bedrock uh, led that is doing really well. I forget what it's called. Um, and also just in general, finding out how to utilize otherwise idle assets. Uh, our friend uh, Justine Pilevsky, uh started Kindred, uh, which is sort of house swapping um, and uh, or sort of a house swapping network that is you know order of magnitude cheaper than Airbnb. Uh, and and highly recommend uh, th that as well. But that, that's another example of, of a company following that same strategy. Yeah, I mean, I, I have less of the perspective on that. I think um, I think one thing on the IQ thing though is, yeah, you might be really high IQ and live in some tough country or circumstances. I think the bigger difference of why the hundred X, yes, the country, but it's actually the context, right? And so, you know there's a lot of value in in time spent in silicon valley building a network like understanding through osmosis of a lot of things that yes you could read it on the internet or watch a youtube video but it's it's really hard to replicate that experience and and that context and so i think that that's the the bigger challenge is you could have a person who's higher higher raw potential in a different place and i think it's just so hard if you're getting stuff piecemeal versus actually coming to the US and, and, and being in that place. And so not to say that it can't happen. And, and like, I think Athena is a great example. Like the, the um, woman I work with through Athena is amazing. She, you know, she's, she has kids and, and like, but she's, she's, you know, on her time schedule with, with the Philippines, like is able to give me a ton of leverage. I mean, we don't have any ops employees. We, we covered that before. A lot of that is because I have an Athena um, and, and she's, she's great. Um, but I think it's like when I need something that, that requires a lot of context, it, it requires a lot of time for me to give a kind of boot up download versus there are specific things where it's like, you know, whether it's helping calendar or travel or um, a bunch of different things in my life that are already kind of, I've already put the time in to build those, those, the context and systems. But I think even there, it's, it's um, you know, if someone was in the U.S. and actually had a little bit more frame of reference for how I live, like all that, because th they might have uh, experience like that, then th the ability to actually be proactive is a lot, lot better because they, they, it doesn't feel foreign to them in terms of like they're getting piecemeal parts of a life. Um, and that's obviously maybe you're more unique to an EA position, but I think I think that's the biggest hard thing about remote just generally is if you don't go really senior and people who have a lot of experience and, and may have worked in person for a while at other places, they, it, it's hard. They're very good. Usually if you give them very discreet things and it's much harder for people to be proactive, there's a lot less chance for the kind of like brainstorming and things that naturally occur when you're just like co-located with people. Yeah, no, that, that, that's well said. Yeah. And the, uh, 
the the assistants that Jonathan has are like the, the the best people he could he could find and same on the engineer side it's the it's the best that these countries have to to offer on the on the talent front um but that was a a great collection of uh of, of ideas and, and and frameworks for for people to take uh and uh I'll be mindful of uh, of time get get you out of here um let's uh let's wrap on that cool good to see you until next time hey everyone Eric here at Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.